Hey everybody, we finished our first class tonight up here in Duffield. Uh, we started this out a little bit different. This one we may focus on the book of specifications, class 5, and looking at WPS's PQRs. One of the reasons for that is, is a welding procedure should be one of the main documents that is used during welding. Unfortunately, in the real world, that's not necessarily the case. But during our class tonight, we talked about some different subjects besides just the book of specification. But in this, uh, this audio series for this one, for the first night's class, we're going to talk about some of those in different segments. One of the things that we talked about a little bit tonight was the different transfer modes for GMAW. Okay, the gas metal arc welding process has different transfer modes and they're typically uh, essential variables or at least part of them are essential variables for procedure qualification and sometimes performance qualification. So just as a reminder as far as what we talked about, we talked about the short circuit transfer mode. It's down on the lower energy side of the GMAW transfer modes. It's nice because it is uh, a little bit lower heat input, so on sheet metal, works pretty good without warping it or distorting it. On welds that are in positions other than flat or horizontal, uh, it, it can overcome gravity a little bit more because of the fact that the puddle is so cold that it freezes quickly and therefore there's less time for gravity to pull the puddle out distort it or, or cause it to sag or put you out in the middle. So the short circuit transfer mode has its places, but it's also a very dangerous transfer mode in the fact that the energy the energy input is so low that on thicker weldments it's very very easy to have lack of fusion and complete fusion. So for that reason in many codes that talk about welding procedure qualification the thickness limitations are somewhat restricted. And when we went through Clause 5 tonight, we, we saw that in the footnotes in Table 7, some of the restrictions that were based on the transfer mode. And then there were also some restrictions that were based on the single-pass weld thickness. But the short-circuit transfer mode is used in the industry. And you may have questions on your CWI Part B exam about it, and also on your fundamentals. But understand that even though it's, uh, you know, got some restrictions on it, don't think that it doesn't have its place in real life. It's a good process for putting in a root pass on stuff. Uh, puddle freezes quick. It's easy to put a nice root in. The next transfer mode that we talked about is the next higher energy level is globular transfer. Globular transfer, if you, if you look at a lot of the literature about it, that's written by the welding equipment manufacturers, it's not recommended. It's terrible, bad, don't use it. Okay, it does produce a lot of large weld spatter normally, but it has some, it has some other features that we didn't necessarily talk about tonight. There's a variation on it where it's called buried arc CO2. With the buried arc process, the arc is actually submerged down into the puddle or below the surface of the puddle. It has a very, very deep penetration profile and a lot of the spatter sometimes contained within the puddle. But one of the things that we talked about about the globular transfer mode is the fact that it doesn't weld very good out of position. And that's for a couple of reasons. One of them is 
uh, the energy in the puddle is a little bit higher, so the puddle's a little bit hotter, stays hot longer, gravity pulls on it more. <clears throat> the other reason is if you think about that large glob of metal trying to jump across that arc into the puddle that's maybe in the vertical position or the overhead position, gravity is going to be acting on that big old blob of metal pretty good. So it doesn't lend itself to weld it out of position very well because of the fact sometimes it might be hard to get the metal in the puddle. And then of course because the puddle is large or hotter, it's, going to not, it's not going to cool off very quickly. The next transfer mode that's used is called spray transfer. It's the higher energy of the three processes. And the spray transfer mode is typically considered to, to only be able to be used with 80% argon or more. As far as your, you know, your fundamental knowledge goes and what you're going to tell somebody, you know, probably the 80% is good to stick with. But if you ever do get a chance, get you some 75-25, crank it up to about 30 volts, crank the wire feed speed up until it begins to hiss and spray and it doesn't pop and spatter. Well, that transfer mode looks like spray, sounds like spray, and acts like spray. But many folks will say it's not spray because it doesn't have 80% argon. I've actually read literature that says for the most stable spray transfer mode, you should have 80% argon. I agree. And as the argon percentage goes up, the transition current that we talked about, the amount of amperage it takes for it to spray, goes down. But spray transfer has got some limitations. That's a, it's a large, hot puddle. It's going to stay hot for a long time. So it's going to have a little bit of a harder time welding out of position. Not necessarily impossible in some cases, but it's going to be a little bit harder. The next transfer mode that we're going to is a variation of spray called pulse mode. One of the things that, that the first three modes had in common is they could all be performed on a regular old constant voltage power supply and wire feeder. The pulse mode, however, has some limitations in the fact that it takes special electronic circuitry to control the waveform to get it to pulse up and down. That machine, more expensive. Now, many folks think that with the pulse spray transfer mode, you can do all kinds of magical out-of-position uphill welding with it. Me, personally, I have a hard time getting much more wire feed speed welding vertical up with a single-pass fillet weld using pulse mode when I compare it to short-circuit transfer. That, that could mean that I just don't know how to use it. But there, I think that there's a physical limitation to how much molten puddle you can carry uphill with a MIG gun with gas metal arc welding before gravity wins. And that's just the way it is. It doesn't make a difference whether it was heated up with short-circuit transfer or with pulse mode. But that's just my opinion. But understand that the pulse transfer, the, the pulse arc mode's got some really neat features where the arc can be fine-tuned. The characteristics of the puddle can be adjusted a little bit. Uh, many of the machines are what's called synergenic, which means when I adjust the wire feed speed, 
the other settings, the voltage pulses per second may actually compensate to keep very similar arc characteristics even though I'm increasing or decreasing the wire feed speed. One of the things that I can do with pulse arc that I know that I cannot do with a regular machine is very, very low wire feed speeds with no spider. 50 inches per minute of 035 70S6. With a regular old conventional MIG machine, GMAW power source, however official you want to get on the terminology, 50 inches a minute of wire of 035 is going to pop and spatter quite a bit. I'm definitely going to be in short circuit transfer mode. Whereas with a pulse arc machine, I can run 50 inches a minute of wire, adjust my trim and arc control a little bit, and make a very, very small, cool bead <coughs> that has little to no weld spatter, which is pretty cool for 50 inches a minute of wire. You can do some, some neat things with it. So anyway, that kind of covers what we talked about in relationship to some WPSs when we saw some of the rules about transfer modes and procedure qualification. So... Have a good night, and I'm going to record a couple more segments to, to talk about what we did in this first class. But this one here is going to be the GMAW transfer mode review. Have a good one. Hey, everybody. Here's another little segment about some of the stuff that we talked about tonight. As we were talking about some of the procedure qualification variables and variables that had to be on WPS, we talked about preheat and what the purpose was for it and one of the things that was brought up was hydrogen control and we got off on a little discussion about low hydrogen electrodes so I'm going to go over some of those things that we mentioned tonight you know hydrogen is is a problem in situations where the base metal is thick and it cools off rapidly there's a high degree of restraint or residual stress that's left in the weld and there's hydrogen present in the weld metal Hydrogen is easily diffused into molten weld metal. As that molten weld metal freezes, that hydrogen is trapped. That hydrogen is going to try to escape, and it's going to have a hard time depending on how fast the weld metal cools down and how thick the base metal is or how thick the weld is. So all those things have to be taken into consideration. Again, this came up in relationship to preheat. So how does preheat help our hydrogen control? Preheat helps our hydrogen control by allowing the weld metal to cool a little bit slower. When it cools slower, hydrogen has a chance to diffuse out. So that's one way to minimize that issue. Another way to minimize it is by not introducing any hydrogen or very little hydrogen into the weld metal. And that can be done by using a low hydrogen welding process such as GMAW, GTAW. <clears throat> or by using a not so low hydrogen welding process that has low hydrogen electrodes. SMAW with E7018 or XXX18 if it ends in an 8, if it ends in a 5, or if it ends in a 6, it's a low hydrogen electrode. If it ends in another number, it is not a low hydrogen electrode. In the case where we're using a low hydrogen electrode, we've got to be careful about keeping the hydrogen content in the coating low 
and we do that by storing the electrodes in a storage oven typically above 200 degrees Fahrenheit closer to 250 another way that we can reduce hydrogen well I already talked about that this is preheat the preheat will reduce the hydrogen by allowing it to get out of the way is to keep it from getting in there to begin with so one of the problems with hydrogen <coughs> is when it is trying to escape and the conditions are right and you'll see those conditions if you look it up in your weld inspection technology book the cracking may be delayed it may not happen after the weld reaches ambient temperature it may happen 24 hours, 48 hours later. So for that reason, when the situation is right for certain materials that are prone to the delayed cracking or hydrogen cracking, the inspections are oftentimes delayed and they're not going to be done for, you know, 24, 48 hours after it's done. Typically that's going to be, be addressed in whatever code or specification you're working to. With the book of specifications, has some references to it in Clause 2 for structural. AWS D1.1 has some references to it for delayed inspection in Table 6.1 if you want to look in there. But it is a situation you need to be aware of. Okay. Uh, not every piece of steel is going to fall apart because of hydrogen. You need to have an awareness of it and the awareness needs to be focused on very thick welds, we'll say, you know, half inch and thicker. Maybe your preheat requirements are going to go up based on your on your code or your WPS. But this is not a hard, fast rule. Okay, but the balance of preheat can help you. Now there's some negatives to that with certain types of steels. We talked about high strength, low alloy steels that receive their strength from heat treatment. So I could really preheat some A514 and get all of the maximum preheat into it that I can. And that way the weld metal will cool down very slowly. The bad thing about that is that that A514 received its mechanical strength from the quenching and tempering process. And whenever I heat it up, if I hold it at a temperature that's too high for too long, those mechanical properties that were received from the heat treatment are now reduced. And there's no non-destructive examination method that will really let you see that. Now there may be some, you know, you may be able to do some heat affected zone hardness testing or something like that on the surface see if it was an issue. If you see a large change in hardness profile adjacent to the weld, hardness is oftentimes related to uh, approximate tensile strength. But again, if you don't follow the requirements for the material when you weld it, you could do things to it that may not be visible or readily noticeable by inspection methods. That's one of the reasons we have a WPS. Now, as, as certified welding inspectors, we're not, <clears throat> we're not tasked with the job of writing a WPS. We're not the welding engineer. We should know how to review one, but we should also have enough familiarity with some of the 
some of the things that are critical or could cause problems so so we may be more aware of them when we're looking at them you know if I see a a weld being done on a piece of four inch thick A36 I'm probably going to make sure that they're meeting the preheat requirements you know it's going to be a flag for me I want to make sure they're doing it anyway but it's going to be something that hey that thing's likely to crack I need to take a look at it make sure they're preheating properly if they're welded on a piece of A514, then I want to maybe look at it and make sure they're not exceeding the manufacturer's recommendation for heat input. <clears throat> so there's a lot of different things we may come across as a weld inspector, but the hydrogen control for steels and low alloy steels can be very important. As we go forward in our training, we're going to talk about it again when we get to it in your weld inspection technology book. We're going to talk about it a little bit when we look at D1.1. <clears throat> it just came up as a, as a minor topic tonight when we were talking about uh, the AWS book of specifications requirements for qualifying a welding procedure. So that'll kind of end this. Uh, and I'm going to talk about a few more topics tonight that may, may refresh your thoughts on what we talked about tonight. I know we covered a lot of new stuff. You know, we spent a good two and a half hours on Clause 5 of the book of specifications, so there's a lot of stuff that was covered. And this will be a little bit of something. If you're, if you're interested in listening to it, please do. Have a good one. Hey, everybody. Here's another short segment. Uh, this is going to be about the tables in Clause 5. I want you to understand that you don't need to memorize everything that's in the book of specifications. But there is some advantage to understanding, number one, what the tables are about, and number two, where they're located. In the context of procedure qualification, there are three tables that you're going to deal with overall. Table number six is going to be the one that tells us what information has got to be on the okay so my first step and this is this is in the context of, of actual inspection if I had to use the book of specifications and someone was doing some work and I was going to go out there and look at it and they sent me the, the WPS and the PQR first one of the first things that I would do is review that WPS and make sure all of the variables that are required are on there. And in the context of the book of specifications, that information is going to be in table six. And okay, there's only four processes that are listed there. So it's not, you know, it's not terribly complicated like it is for some other codes. But the variables that are listed in table six need to be addressed on the WPS. Now, in some cases, they may not apply. In other cases, there may, they may apply, but there weren't, the, that variable had no, a value of none, zero, whatever it may be. Be familiar with the terminology that's in there. Look it up if you have to. Look for it, uh, you know, in your weld inspection technology book if there's stuff that you don't understand. And again, feel free to, to call, text, email, message on the Welding Classroom Forum about things that you don't understand. And that way we can kind of work through them and, and, and everybody stay up to date. 
But the table six, remember that it is the stuff that has to be on the WPS. Table seven is the table that tells us what thickness a specific PQR, procedure qualification test. Now I know I use the term PQR and it's not in the book of specifications. That's just the acronym for procedure qualification record. Uh, understand that they're, you know, that and the procedure qualification test are the same thing. I'm just in the habit of saying PQR, so don't, don't let it confuse you much. But on my procedure qualification test, if I weld on a certain thickness of base metal and I have a certain amount of deposited weld metal for, you know, for more than one process, table seven tells me what qualified thickness my WPS can be written for. And when I say qualified thickness, I mean base metal thickness, which is the uppercase T, or weld metal thickness, which is the lowercase T. But you'll notice that on the left-hand column, there are rules for, the, or there's a requirement for what the base metal thickness was. Make sure you understand what those mean and be able to look at your PQR, decide what the thickness is, and pick out the appropriate row. Make sure that you understand some different, you understand the values for a decimal and how they compare it to a fraction. So you understand whether something might be less than or greater than something that's listed as a fraction. There's a lot of footnotes in Table 7. You need to make sure that you understand them and you know when to apply them. Okay, there's some that are applied specifically only to the GMAW short circuit transfer process. There's some of them that only apply to metal qualification. The issues during qualification was 3 eighths of an inch or greater. When it's 3 eighths of an inch or greater, the qualified base metal thickness for fillet wells is different if it was less than three-eighths of an inch. Look that, look that up for yourself. Find that footnote. Understand that there's some rules down there for single pass thickness limitations. If you have a single pass that's greater than one-half inch thick, there's some limitations on the qualified base metal thickness. In the context of the book of specifications, the interesting thing about that is that is the only place single pass thickness is referred to. Okay. So maybe it was just a carryover or I don't know why it's in there. But that's the only place that it's addressed. There's no rules in it for in table eight for the procedure qualification ranges. But there is a rule for it in table seven. And basically it says if my single pass layer thickness is a half an inch or greater, then my base metal qualified thickness range is going to be only 1.1 times what I did on the test. And, you know, that's my off the top of my head reading of it. So you need to look at it and see what it says. Make sure you understand it. Make sure that you're, you know, that you're aware of it. Don't know if there'll be questions about it or not. Again, I don't have access to all the questions. You know, next time I redo my CWI on my nine years, I'm going to take the Part B. 
know, it's worth it for me for the money just to see what's on it. So, you know, understand the purpose of table seven. Make sure you also understand that there are lots of footnotes and you need to be aware of when they're going to apply. Remember the M number rules in one of the paragraphs there, 5.2 something. Forgive me if I get it wrong, you can look it up. But understand that there are requirements for what M number qualifies for what M number. In no case does joining of a lower M number qualify for anything done to a higher M number. But the other way around does exist. Read it, make sure you understand it. For non-impact, non-toughness applications, the group number is not addressed, only the M number. But if, tough, if toughness requirements exist, then the group number becomes a variable that you need to be aware of. Again, you can read through it. So the bulk of the variables for the welding process qualification are in Table 8. Okay, Table 8 tells us that if you change something outside the limits in Table 8, you got to essentially requalify the procedure. So you want to be familiar with those variables and understand what, what variable on the PQR, what resulting qualified range it would give you on a WPS. Don't have to memorize every one of them. The main thing is know where it's at, know how to read it. Be aware of the differences between the Q that's in the column and the T. T is going to be a variable that only applies to situation where toughness requirements apply. So that kind of goes over the, you know, the tables that were in there. Now, there's much more to it than this. We talked about it for, like I said, two and a half hours. If you have any questions, holler at me. Make sure when you do your assignments, if you find something wrong with one of the sample WPSs or PQRs, refer to the paragraph that tells you that it's wrong. That way, when I look it up, I know that you, you know, you understood it, you documented it, and it's good practice. You know, I gave you an example of it while we were there. You don't have to be as wordy as I am. But definitely refer to the item on the document that's incorrect and refer to the place where the requirements are that make it incorrect. Y'all have a good night. I appreciate it. So one more little segment to talk about. I mentioned it briefly while we are there in class. You know, while your brain is on the subject of WPSs and PQRs, you could look in AWSD 1.1 and just look through some of the tables, the requirements that are in there, glance through it again. You don't, I don't want you to read it all, but maybe look in there for some wording or some variables that are similar, not necessarily requirements. So one of the places you could look right off the bat is table 4.5. That list of variables for procedure qualification. Look at table 4.6. Those are the variable ranges that are allowed for procedure qualification in which toughness or impact testing requirements apply.
and don't spend a whole lot of time on it. Don't confuse yourself. You don't have to memorize anyway, but kind of gives you some additional additional food for thought of getting the concept of WPSs and PQRs in your mind. Okay? Any of the inspection that we do, it's not about memorizing the code. It's about knowing how to use it. A lot of the concepts between different codes are very, very similar. Now, the way they're written may be different. Terminology they use may be different. But the concept of procedure qualification test weld, I'm going to test it a certain way. And I'm going to document what qualified ranges are a certain way. It's kind of common. Okay? The tables, the charts, again, the requirements may be very well be different. But looking in another, you know, looking in another code book and just kind of checking out the differences may help you some. We're going to spend more time on WPSs and PQRs in the future when we go through D1.1. We're going to talk about them briefly when we go through the Weld Inspection Technology book. But right now, I want you to have a fairly good understanding of, their, of the purpose of a WPS. Okay, that's the real purpose is to give the welder guidance in a way that will help them produce consistent welds. Unfortunately, WPSs are oftentimes just documents that are stuck in the QC office for all of us to review and talk about how smart we are and how much the code, you know, uh, what we found in the code is wrong with them, but the welders never get to see them. Okay, they're, they're just that secret voodoo document that, that all of us smart QC people get to handle and talk about when really they should be in the hands of the welder and we should be supervising what they do with it and helping them understand it whenever possible. One of the other things that they mentioned today uh, about the WPSs, well, I'll save that for another one, forget it. Y'all have a good one. Here's another little segment about what we talked about tonight, and it's kind of it kind of applies to any part of the code or the book of specifications or any document that you're reading. Make sure that you're aware of the context of one of the requirements that you are reading. Uh, you know, I use an example of you know a term undercut. Make sure that you if you see the word undercut and it says that no more than 10% of the wall thickness or 132nd is allowed. Make sure you understand what that is in the context of. Is it in the context of procedure qualification, performance qualification, structural steel? Is it in accordance? Is it something that's in the requirement for maybe a repair? Okay, so be aware of the parent paragraph numbers whenever you read something. Make sure that you're in the right place. You know, basically, the book of specifications is a big outline, and each paragraph has subparagraphs that apply to that. Make sure that you're aware of how they're laid out, what they mean. Don't just read a statement in there when you're answering questions or when you're, you're studying and storing in your brain that, that that applies got to make sure that you're in the right context. One of the things that we noticed tonight as we were going through the, the book of specifications in Clause 5, 
the paragraph that refers us to the requirements for the dimensions of the test specimens makes reference to paragraph 5.3 but when you go to paragraph 5.3 it really doesn't tell us the dimensions of the test specimens you've got to kind of search through for the bend test requirement and find the bend test requirements and then within that paragraph will tell you what you need to know about the sizes another way that you can get there is looking in the table of contents contents and looking for the specific annex that tells you bend specimen requirements so there's sometimes that uh, the referencing paragraphs don't necessarily tell you everything that you need to know that's where having the index is good out of luck on the book specifications but having table contents might be helpful having a familiarity with the annexes and having read through those you know the different paragraphs in there the book of specifications is not all that long read it from cover to cover make some notes in it you're going to get one when you do your test when you have your test it's got the exact same content in it of course you won't have your notes but the purpose of writing the notes is not so you can use them on your test as much as it is to reinforce what you read what you you know what you have questions about you write down some notes about a specific paragraph and that specific paragraph is going to be a little bit more familiar to you next time you see it. So hopefully all these helped. I may add a few more. I'm almost home. Y'all have a good night.